Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got in the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, the tables have turned. I welcome Atlanta Journal-Constitution entertainment reporter Rodney Ho to the show. And instead of it being my job to ask the questions, I'm handing the reins over to Rodney, who will take the lead on the interview. Let's see what Rodney discovered about me and about Black Hall Studios. Thanks for listening. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Hey, this is Rodney Ho from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I am here with the Black Hall Studios podcast. And uh, instead of Ryan, um, you know, homing this, uh, we're going to reverse things. And me as a reporter, I'm going to ask him all the questions. And he's going to have to answer them. That, 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 that's a threat, right? <laughs> I know. It's so frightening, isn't it? Um, anyway, we've talked several times before. Um, this is the first time I've seen you face to face since the pandemic started. Um, and, and this is only our second post um, COVID live podcast. Oh, nice. Nice. And uh, what, uh, what made you decide to even do this at this point? several months into now that you're, you, I mean, you're, you're starting back up right now, right? I mean, well, we, you know, we did bo- podcasts all through the pandemic, all through the social distancing time um, where everybody was at home. We just did it on telephones and gotcha. however, however we could make it work, but we weren't doing it face to face. The, uh, so how, how are things going right now? I, I know you got a couple projects finally back in gear here after being shut down for what, three months, four months? Oh, it's been, well, it really March. So April, May, June, July, July. really five months of shutdown shutdown, and we're, you know, we're getting back up and running now. Yeah. I see some cars out there. So there's some pre-production going on with a couple of projects. That's exactly right. So we have one project that's coming back that, Mm -hmm. that got, was interrupted by COVID. Right. And they're starting to ramp back up. And so they'll probably be the first ones to be filming again. Okay. And in September, or are they going to be able to get going soon? I think they'll be filming before the end of August. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. Because their sets are built. And so they just need to get their whole production teams back up to mm-hmm. speed. 
Yeah, I, I spoke with you during the pandemic, and you said you you spent a goodly amount of money. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> fixing we, things up. So, uh, quick summary on what you've done to this place to make it uh, COVID less COVID friendly, so to speak, or more COVID safe. <laughs> well, you know, we we've done a you know a number of things. Uh, I was I was talking about this recently, um, and about the fact that. As the pandemic has progressed, we've learned more and more about how to fight against this virus. And some of the core fundamental things are just simply, you know, wear masks to make sure that you don't have uh, transfer of lung fluids of any sorts. Um, Keep social distance and then, you know, avoid being in um, small spaces where the airflow is uh, poor. Right. Right. And so. We, you know, those are the primary core fundamental aspects of how we as a society can fight this thing. But then what we did is we went in and we put in air handling systems uh, called bipolar ionization. And what it does is it release, releases these ions into the uh, air. And these ions are charged such that they attack the virus in the air. And so the air then becomes antiviral. And this technology has been used in hospitals for years, but we had no reason to think about being antiviral in the air pre pandemic. So uh, we added those. That was our, I primary. guess it wasn't a priority. I mean, obviously you could, you know, cause people have known uh, sets to be quite, uh, you know, when somebody gets sick, everybody gets sick has always been kind of a traditional thing. People say on sets because everybody's so close together, but it wasn't a priority because people weren't necessarily dying from a cold or whatever. That's exactly right. They, you know, we all it was an inconvenience more than anything. Else. It was an inconvenience. And this is, you know, the first time in this generation that a virus was so severe right. in the United States that it started to have major effect on um, economic conditions and work workplace uh, conditions. And so, you know, we, we put a lot of money into that system. But then we've done other things like we put um, copper antiviral wraps on the door handles. Um, we have uh, installed um, touchless soap and water dispensers in all of our bathrooms um how do the sets how about the sets uh what do they look like now obviously the production companies have their own protocols right that are not necessarily your protocols or yeah well and they're the drivers of the protocols quite Mm -hmm. frankly because the producers guild who is driving these protocols has worked with the screen actors guild and um and the Directors Guild and IATSE and the Teamsters and had all of those unions sign off on protocols that they've developed as the guys that are really like the logistics and business guys of the production, the, you know, the producers. Right. And so we're largely yielding to their needs sure. based on the protocols that they've developed because they've been you know, working with all of the constituents in a way that we haven't. So, I mean, do you have to charge more for this in a sense, or are you in a position, do you have any leverage, you know? Well, I mean, leverage, leverage is not something you want to apply in, in catastrophe. True. Right. So right now, yeah, the you don't spirit want to suddenly of, start selling masks for thirty dollars a piece. Right. Yeah. That's right. In, in this in this environment, it's really a how do we work together to get back to work? Fair enough. And so nobody is. I haven't experienced anybody seeking to price gouge or oh, that's good. put pressure. Um, it feels like a very uh, cooperative environment. Um, 
Now, depending on how things change over time, there may, you know, things may be get more expensive. It's like any sort of inflationary force. And when you have to spend more money on your product, then you have to charge more money to the right. end user. So I would imagine there will be some of that because we, we are incurring costs that we weren't incurring before. But so are they. So, yes. you know, we're all working together to try to figure out how to share the burden. And what's um, the primary, from, from, from a studio standpoint, what's the primary expenses that, you know, outside the initial investment of all this equipment and installing all this equipment after the fact, what's the day-to-day? Is there a day-to-day cost for you as well? Or? Well, the day-to-day costs are largely um, staff costs. That's, you know, that's one of my primary major uh, drivers. to keep everything clean or to... Well, just the administration of our our entire organization, you know, from the top down, from my vice presidents to my um, assistants, you know, it's, it's all in my accountants and my uh, studio coordinators and stage managers and, you know, all of the staff that is required to service a production company. And... and- these extra and obviously because of the safety protocols that adds extra duties for each person right so you you know and absolutely and do you need extra people or extra staffing on top of that the extra staffing is largely being picked up by the productions because they're adding the staff like they're each of the productions is adding covid staff so right safety coordinators and Correct. Yeah, liaisons the, and overseers whatever you want to call them yeah so in the past you know there were however many um divisions inside of a production company from transportation, which dealt with all the, uh, anything with wheels to, uh, makeup, right. Hair and makeup and that division of people and that labor. And now there's a new division that is basically COVID safety. Wow. And so those bodies, uh, didn't exist before. And so it's a new job inside of Hollywood is COVID where do they safety. find these people? Are people suddenly becoming experts or they have to find medical people or, well, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. In fact, Bren Duvall, who runs a staffing company for, uh, productions. And she said one of her primary focus in the, in recent months has been trying to figure out where are we going to source all of these covid compliance people right that, who that, are these people how, yeah that this doesn't exist before so you got to find people how, how do they get trained I, how do they get licensed what does that even mean yeah i i don't even know right i mean that'd be a question for bren we can yeah. you know we should ask her but um i'd be totally speculating but i'm guessing they're pulling people out of medical like they're pulling nurses yeah. out and um calling you know, just finding people that have a background in yeah, I get the impression a lot of retirees have had to sort of come back in too and help out, even though they may on actually, the medical side. Yeah, on the medical side. Yeah, even though they may actually be very vulnerable to this virus. Well, you know, it's I, I remember speaking to a, a doctor friend of mine who is um, in the in an emergency room doctor, and he I believe is early sixties. And he just said, listen, I mean, it's part of the job. It's like whether you, if you're a police officer, you put yourself in harm's way. If you're a soldier, yeah. you put yourself in harm's way. If you're a fireman, you put your, and if you're an emergency room doctor, this is part of the territory. Wow. So um, it's, you know, that, that's pretty brave when you hear somebody speak about it in those yeah. stark, easy terms. Yeah, what you and I are doing is nothing in comparison, I guess, in, from a not safety from, perspective. Not yeah. from a risk safety no, perspective. No, definitely not maybe from a financial risk perspective on your part right now, you're, you're still in expansion mode, right? I mean, you've got this space and you're still trying to add extra space here, right? In we're Atlanta. tripling the size here in Atlanta. You already have nine studios. And yeah, nine. And we're, you know, we'll, we'll add um, at least 20 more. Wow. Yeah. 
and that, maybe more. Was that a three to five year plan at this point? Or? No, I mean, that should be built. I mean, we should we should be finished with all of the entitlement work, I would think, in the next six months. Okay. And then it'll take us 12 months to build. So Did, did by, COVID delay some of that? COVID definitely delayed. Mm-hmm. COVID's delayed everything. Yeah. Was um, it a more of a financial situation or more of the logistical of the government just having... It's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously... Um, you know, when you're spending, we've got $850 million of development in the pipeline between London and our expansion in Atlanta and our expansion in LA. And is that money all committed? Like, are there people willing to shell that out at this point? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the process is probably a hundred million of equity, uh, year one and a hundred million in year two and probably 150 million in year three. And then the rest would be debt. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's about 500 so you, million. You, you have some rich friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have some, I certainly have some very successful investors, investors who understand what we're executing and how rare it is really inside of the real estate space to get something, um, that is so early and so misunderstood where we can really expand and dominate the space. When you say misunderstood, how is it misunderstood in the real estate space? Well, you know, building movie studios in 2020 is not that different than building self-storage in the 1970s, right? So in the 1970s, if you were building self-storage, there wasn't something called self-storage. No, it it wasn't a thing at the time. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't even a category. Movie studios aren't a category at this point. Now, they might be now because a month ago, Blackstone invested over a billion dollars in the space with HPP in, in LA, HPP is a publicly traded REIT, oh, okay. and they formed a joint venture to just buy studio spaces. Wow. So maybe it's a category now because of Blackstone, but pre-Blackstone coming into the space, it wasn't a category. Gotcha. So it was too niche. It was too niche, yeah, exactly. So it, imagine you're building um, self-storage in the 1970s, and you're a developer, and you go to your banker friend, and you say, hey, I bought this piece of land down the street, and I want to build 100 garages on it, would you give me a loan? You're like, what, what are you talking about? Said, what are you talking about? You're going to build 100 garages? Who's going to rent them? I said, right. well, my neighbor's stuff is pouring out of his garage. And right. my buddy who's a plumber says he, didn't, he needs extra space as well. Mm-hmm. He says, you want to build 100 garages for plumbers and your neighbor? So yeah, that's what I want to do. He goes, you're crazy. You can't, I can't lend, make you a loan on right. that. So and you- so the guy builds it for cash. And he builds it for a 30 cap, which means he gets a 30% return without leverage on the things that he's building that, well, those are outrageous real estate returns, but he does it. And then he goes back to the banker with a, um, a rent roll, which is a, a list of all the people that are in his now hundred garages. And he gives it to the banker and the banker says, Oh my gosh, you filled up all those garages. Mm-hmm. He says, but I can't make a loan on these cash flows. These are 30 day cancelable leases to plumbers and your neighbor. Right. There's no, that's not good credit. And the guy says, I don't know what you're talking about. I got to build more. I got so much demand. And so the guy does it again. And he does it again. And by the 1980s, the bankers look at the uh, all these cash flows coming out of these garages, and they say, "Man, you know, it looks like people need a lot of extra space to store stuff." Yeah, banks are laggers. They're not really the. They're not exactly the place to go for cutting edge. They are investments. not. They, they are not on the bleeding edge of no. opportunities. So then they start making loans on this stuff, and by the 90s. You get publicly traded REITs that are multi-billion-dollar publicly traded REITs just that a, are all just self-storage, unbelievable. and those cash flows are trading on four caps, which is a four percent return without leverage, right? So they're trading on four caps today, 
And those cash flows are still just 30-day cancelable leases to plumbers and your neighbor. And this all ties into the show Hoarders. Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It does tie into the show Hoarders. But in a similar way, building well, Storage movie Wars as well. That was also a great show, yeah. That was a good show, Storage <laughs> Wars. So in a similar way, the cash flows, uh, the real estate cash flows of a movie studio, which is all this is is commercial real estate. Yes. Right? Uh, so it's just, I mean, you come from the real estate side. You're, you're not a Hollywood dude. And, correct. Uh, in that sense. So the cash flows that come out of the movie studios that we develop are just real estate cash flows. Right. And right now they're not understood because people don't totally understand this industry the way they didn't understand self-storage sure. in, the, in the 1970s. And so over time, these cash flows will get validated. These cash flows will become... Um, Felt to be permanent. And look, by- 10 years ago, trying to do this would have been highly risky because the tax credits were very new. Didn't know whether they were going to last because without the tax credits, you would ha- not have a very good business here. So That's exactly right. But, but still building these today, you don't have good financing options. Still, the options are still somewhat limited. Because so it takes very sophisticated equity money mm-hmm. and it takes very sophisticated debt money to understand the trends enough to get ahead of the game and not wait around until it's normalized. Because when things get normalized, they get expensive. Mm-hmm. Whereas when things are not normal, then you get asymmetrical returns, right? So right now, I feel like I'm taking very little real capital risk for hugely outsized returns. Right, and at that's this a, stage. But that's that may, a, may not be the case in 10 or 15 years. Correct. Like I, you know, I, I used to own a lot, of, a lot of apartments. I still own some. But yes. at the peak, uh, after Lehman Brothers failed in 2010, oh, 11, so 12, 13. So sorry. In those in those years, I bought about eight thousand apartments, and those eight thousand apartments Sorry. traded at higher cap rates, and they were trading at higher cap rates on lower rents than they are today. And today, the rents have run a long way, and so the rent to income ratios are much higher, right? Um, than they used to be. It used to be that people were spending a lot less percentage of their income on their rent in Georgia. Right. So now people are spending a lot more percentage of their rent uh, on on or or their income on rent, and the um and the cap rates have fallen. Debt prices have fallen too, but the margins of safety inside of multifamily are significantly less than they were when I was buying in 2010, 11, 12, 13. Right, largely driven by capital. Right, so in in those those years post Lehman failing, capital was scarce. Gotcha. And so there was opportunity to buy things where it didn't feel like there was much downside, but there was a huge amount of upside. Whereas today, it feels like if you're buying multifamily, it might work out. If everything goes right, it might work out. But if anything goes wrong, it could go really, really wrong because there's not a lot of margin of safety. What? You know, it sounds like you have, you know, this seems like a reasonable investment. Is there any, what's the potential downside for you? I mean, you said it's not the highest risk thing at this point, given the situation that you feel like you can get a a good return based on demand for, I guess, product, which is movies and TV right now. There's still enough, there's still more demand than actual supply of studios at this point. Yeah. Well, there's, there's significantly more demand than there is supply. Um, You know, these are specialty buildings. Yes. So there's a lot of ways you can screw them up. And when we were building them the first time, certainly um, people I had involved screwed things up and they had to be fixed. So, you know, you have to be willing to take a risk of fixing screw ups because, you know, people can make mistakes. And so that keeps a lot of people out of new spaces is they don't want to make mistakes and they don't want to um, 
they don't want to have to recover from the mistakes of people that don't know what they're doing. The uh, so you, you are looking to expand in London as well, and um, was it New York or LA? Where else LA, you, LA. Yeah, okay. So you know we've got about four hundred million in development in London, and we have about two hundred fifty million of expansion and development in Los Angeles. Why didn't you choose New York or Vancouver or Toronto? I guess those are other well, options. Well, right? it's not that we didn't choose. Um, all of these places, other than Atlanta, the other cities, which are Los Angeles, New York, London, Toronto, Vancouver, those five other cities have very difficult, tight real estate markets. Fair. Right? So Atlanta is the place where there's the most land to expand. Atlanta, and really Georgia as a whole, Georgia can absolutely own this space if we can just provide enough stability, right? Right. Legislative stability, uh, social stability, that we signal to the entertainment industry that we are totally committed to this space for the long term. If that, if the, if the entertainment industry starts to believe that Georgia is truly a stable place for this industry, then we will just explode because there's not places to grow in LA and London and Toronto, Vancouver, any of the New York, the land is, is so scarce that they just, they just don't have the opportunities to expand. So we're working on some projects, uh, some possible projects in New York. We're working on possible projects in Canada. Uh, we've just found uh, projects in London and found land in LA. Gotcha. And found land here in Georgia that all fits, you know, our expansion plans. Um, and so that's where it all fits together. Now, you know, the, the hard part about all of this, even in Georgia, is that as we continue to expand at this in this great location that is Black Hall, 15 minutes south of Inman Park, then this becomes kind of the de facto center of production life in the state. And then everything that radiates from that has a lot more risk because we fundamentally have such a good, strong location and scale that other people can't match in that kind of a location. So I mean, EUE screen drums is kind of limited in their space. Um, there, there's nowhere me, to grow. Can Metro studios grow at all? Or, um, maybe I don't, you know, I don't think that's in their business and plan. Pine, I guess Pinewood is the Pinewood could definitely grow, they, but they're a little out of the way, right? They that's the difference. I mean, really, um, the only reason we built black hall in the first place was because, um, Pinewood was so far outside the city. And so we just, you know, I said to myself, well, what if we built Pinewood in the city? And so as I talked to people in Georgia and LA about that, and I said, what if I build Pinewood in the city? They said, man, if you build Pinewood in the city, you're going to destroy it. And and the big studios are very happy to have you here, right? They, they, they love it. They love it. Are you often the first call people make before they have to go to a second or third or fourth choice? They tell us that's the case. I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I, I, you know, <laughs> you never know exactly if people, what they're telling you is the truth, but what all the feedback we get is that we're the first place that people want to be. And then they're going to other places if, if we don't have space. Right. Like I said, you can handle right now with nine studio, nine studios, you can handle two huge projects at, at right two now. Two huge three in general is three productions. So, right. you know, we're, we're maybe doing five productions in a year. Yeah. That's not a huge number of productions, no. relatively speaking. No. And Georgia at any one time in a, in a non COVID environment, there are 55, 60 productions going on. So for us to triple our size just means that we go from three at a time to eight, maybe eight, seven, eight, ten at a time. Let's call it 10. So right. if I'm 10 of 60. Right. 
and and where they yeah where... You're, you're never going to get a monopoly on this town in terms of studio space there's still plenty of other studios space. correct you're just one option correct but but we might get the 10 best shows could be or or movies yeah yeah do you care whether it's a movie or a tv show or a docuseries docu yeah and not docuseries but a miniseries or well of course i know i mean you know it's all about the quality of the client so universal and disney and marvel and sony these are amazing top of the line top of the line clients so whatever they want to make is fine that being said if you get a recurring television show that's wonderful because they might stay for 10 years if it's a yeah everybody's looking for the walking dead right that's what they hope for it doesn't happen that yeah, often game of nowadays. thrones walking dead but those are rare ray donovan you know i mean it seems like the trend is for shorter series to go shorter with fewer episodes though that seems to be the case you don't i don't know if you're necessarily going to see a 201 episode run of the office again anytime soon especially if it's on a streaming service. That, Why do you think that is? Have I don't you know. Anything? Netflix doesn't seem committed to doing a huge date. They, they want quantity and maybe quality in the sense, quantity of a lot of different shows, but also quality in terms of, um, you know, just doing a few episodes. It seems like they don't, they're not forcing anybody to do 23 episodes a year. Um, you know, the way, you know, I think in the, you know, in the broadcast world, they have to feed the beast and they only have limited, they're not going to, run so many they can only run so many shows and they would like those shows to run 23 episodes a year and back in the day syndication mattered so that was a big deal back in the day Hmm. what's interesting is that it's you know the most popular streaming shows sometimes are the shows that have 200 episodes friends seinfeld um big bang theory the office they all have a huge number of episodes yet I don't think anything Netflix has released has gone more than 80 or 90 episodes. I think Orange is the New Black is probably their longest, most episodes of anything they've released. It's probably at maybe 80 or 90 episodes. And used to be 100 used to be the magic mark for syndication. So I don't think anything Netflix has released would even qualify in the old world of syndication, which is weird. But that's just... They don't care. They're happy with eight or ten episodes a season for three to five seasons. That seems to be the norm for them. But they, but they haven't really, at this point, developed anything that would be considered like a sitcom. True, like a truly successful sitcom. I mean, they had Fuller House, which was kind of a, but nobody ever considered that something that's going to, yeah, stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't think any of their biggest hits would be considered traditional Big Bang Theory type sitcoms, no. Or what, even The Office. I wonder what's like keeping them from trying to utilize that. I don't know. I mean, they've done a lot of, you know, dramedy kind of, you know, Glow and Orange is the New Black have definitely comedic elements and they have some traditional sitcom stuff. Um, but none of it's like broken big, big, you know, massive. Yeah, why, 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 why do you think they haven't been able to develop something like Friends or Seinfeld? It's hard to do. I mean, the broadcast networks haven't been able to do it. I think humor, maybe people's, you know, I think our world has gotten so bifurcated and so broken up it's hard to find anything that everybody wants to watch anymore anyway so and, and netflix doesn't even care that everything's very niche for them anyway uh they're not looking for something that's going to bring in 30 million viewers they don't really or if, yeah that, that's not even their intention and most streaming services are like that now it's not it's it's, it's about having enough product that somebody will spend 13 dollars a month on it because of covid and the lack of content 
Um, I've been watching a bunch of old '90s movies with my ten-year-old, who's super. Oh, which into, ones? Oh, I mean, like we we watched uh, Coming to America. I oh, didn't realize I didn't remember there were '80s. Come on, I mean, that's true. '88. <laughs> it was '88. Um, we've been we we great watched, movie. Love um, that movie. Uh, the original Jumanji. And it's funny, both movies, I guess, sequels that have been shot here in, in, in Georgia. Here at Blackhawk, yeah. in fact. Yeah. Um, you know, so, That's right, Jumanji. But, did, did, you, did Coming to America also shoot some stuff here, too? Or No, I, that I, was all done, um, I think, at uh, Aru Brothers. Aru Brothers, okay. Yeah. That, yeah, that movie's supposed too. to come out later this year or something. I don't know how the schedules are now. It's very, very fuzzy. You know what I'm actually excited for it's is like, Lovecraft Country. Yeah, HBO. it's coming out on Sunday. On Sunday, and that was all filmed here at Black Hall. It's luscious looking. I watched the first episode. It is just, you could tell. this, you know, And you could see a lot of the small towns they used around Atlanta to be used as small towns you know, across the country. I know? love that. What, what, how did you see the first episode? Is it already dropped? No, HBO gives me access to screeners. So oh, nice. I have, I, I, you know, I have, I have multiple episodes. I just haven't had a chance. I've had to watch other things. Are they um, going to, are they, you have multiple episodes. Are they going to drop multiple episodes on Sunday? Do you, or no, no, no. HBO is HBO. I think is still, this is a traditional model of once a week uh, HBO. This is not an HBO max series where they might. And even then at some of the streaming services still do a traditional, like Hulu still will release one. Maybe they'll release two or three in the beginning and then one a week. I think Netflix is the only one that consistently, I think, just releases all this, all the, se- you know, the entire season at once. They rarely split things up. I think with Love Is Blind, which was an Atlanta reality show, they did split up some of the episodes. They didn't air them all at once because they wanted to build up some anticipation and some discussion, and it worked very well for Love Is Blind. Hmm. And that was a big deal earlier this year. Well, one one of the things we've been, I've been wa- noticing in watching these movies with my with my daughter is that a lot of the humor. Mm-hmm. Might be very difficult to get away with in the, in the oh. current environment. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the humor humor is. What do we do with that? I mean, what, what do you, what do the, how do the what do the journalists talk about when you start talking about? It's a challenge. I mean, it, it's part of that whole discussion of cancel culture, and you know, you know, Jimmy Fallon twenty years ago made it done a blackface thing about Chris Rock, and now he's getting crap for it. But that was acceptable, even if, you know, you can always argue, was that really all that funny anyway? But yeah, wh- white people dressed up in blackface a lot <laughs> back in the, quite often, usually in a jokey way, you know, right, right through the 2000s. It's kind of astonishing how much did that happen. But humor, yeah, humor is changing and it's tough. I, I feel bad for our stand-up comics and comedy writers. It's, it's a challenge, I'm sure, to know what, where, where the line is drawn. Do you think they could make that, remember that movie with the Wayans brothers, White Chicks? Oh, no way. I know. That, that was like a reverse blackface thing. Yeah, that was kind of a mockery of blackface, I think, the whole concept of it. I thought that movie was hilarious. Yeah. Or, but that couldn't be made today, or, do, you, do you think? I mean, I, could I don't that could know. Good question. I, I don't know. I'm not the person, you know, you could ask your buddies in the production companies what, what in, they yeah, think. Yeah, in, in cancel culture, are are black people allowed to dress up like white people? Good question. I mean, that, that was a classic um, Eddie Murphy skit, too, back in the SNL days in the 80s. He, uh, he There was a funny skit where he dressed up as a white person, and then he found out that white people had all these benefits he had no idea about, you know. Well, in, was, in Coming to America, he plays Saul, the Jewish guy who hangs out at the barbershop. That's true. He does. He, he, yeah, he plays everybody in the barbershop. <laughs> well, no, Arsenio Hall plays one of the oh, characters. Oh, that's true. But he plays like four characters, right? Yeah, like, he That plays, must have been a shooting yeah. nightmare. Talk about having a... That must have taken days to piece that one scene together. He was fantastic, Crazy. though. I mean, early Eddie Murphy. Oh, he was classic, yeah. And Coming to America was 
was just absolutely brilliant, funny movie. Absolutely hilarious. Uh, so, um, but you're right. Uh, Lovecraft Country is just an interesting hybrid of horror and and a little bit like the Green Book or something. Because there's even a guy who apparently you know does a Green Book type book in the movie on the TV show. I mean. And uh, it's set in the 50s. You know, well, because it's Jim, Jim Crow, Crow era, right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. it definitely, uh, but there's also this horror element to it, too. So it's a kind of an interesting hybrid. But is and, it horror like Get Out? Or is it horror? I haven't gotten to that point yet, but it, it it's not, yeah. Is it grotesque? More like, no, yeah, it's probably more subtle horror. Yeah, it's, it's like not, suspense. It's, yeah, suspense horror with just a little bit of blood and scary stuff. Yeah. Although I, I remember when they were here walking into one of their sets and it was torture equipment. <laughs> right it was a torture chamber wow and well i'm sure it's gonna i've only watched like the first episodes so i think a lot a lot of weird things will be happening down well, the road well you know there's this time travel element that it plays out i think in some at some point yeah cause, well, yeah. i know for sure it play you know because i i would see characters from all these different eras that were not the 1950s mm-hmm. and around the around the studio and i'd say why are those guys Dressed up like that in the twenties, they'd say, "Oh, that's for Lovecraft Country." It was like, yeah, it was like Watchmen. They did some, you know, cool flashback. HBO did some cool flashback scenes. I haven't seen Watchmen. Is that worth watching? It's fascinating, yes, and especially in this day of masks, because masks become such a big deal in the in the show. It's kind mm. of prescient that way, you know. Yeah, uh, even though it has nothing to do with with viruses, but uh, it's 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 a fascinating show. Oh, for sure, yeah, it's it's worth seeing. No doubt. I'll put that on the list. Yeah, I'm not sure which which studio. Yeah, I don't remember. The problem is I'm terrible remembering which studios. Did, I don't know which studio did Watchmen. Do you remember? Do you even know? HBO, on, right? No, no. Which um, which local studio was the base? Oh, for? that was um, uh, Watchmen. Was at um, Atlanta Metro. Atlanta Metro. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That I think I think Watchmen came in before Black Hole opened in 2017. Oh, gotcha. And. Is Red Notice the uh, Red Notice the I Netflix show with the Rock at at, uh, at Atlanta Metro? As well. Yeah, he was almost done right and when they had to shut things down. So I guess they have to uh, go and go back and do whatever they didn't finish. Well, and he has such a tight schedule. Oh, because he's be... always because he always has seventeen projects on online. Well, or? I mean, they're trying to figure out when to make Hobbs and Shaw too. Oh, gotcha. Right, so the you know the Rock <laughs> can make three or four movies a year. He and could, then, yeah, under well, normal no, he's, circumstances. He he's making, yeah, we're not in COVID, right? But he's right. in a normal world, he's making three to four movies it's a insane. year. Insane. I don't know how that guy does it. He, he's a machine. Yeah. That, how that, does he have time to work out and stay in shape? I don't even know how he does the, all that. That's that just, is that is childhood trauma. <laughs> the only way that you have that kind of motivation, that kind of workaholism, is is maybe resolved childhood trauma, but born from childhood <laughs> trauma nonetheless. Uh, all right. You're going to have to talk to the rock about that one. I don't, I don't know anything. So. I bet he would tell us. I, you know, I would, I, he seems like an incredibly open guy. Some of the people I've talked to Frank over at Pinewood and he's got a new name coming too. He's supposed to come up with a new name from Pinewood. They were supposed to announce it in June, but uh, they delayed it until next month. So we'll find out whatever name Frank comes up with. I'm not sure. You haven't heard what the new name is, right? I heard it was going to be Eat More Chicken Studios. <laughs> Very subtle. No. That would be so subtle, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean, do, do you, I mean, look, you're a real estate guy, you're a business guy. Do you like, do you want to be liked? Does it matter whether everybody loves you? Does it make it not make a difference? I mean, is that, listen, it, it's <laughs> it, it, business life is not different, not, not that different than sports life, which is if people are talking about you as a competitor, 
it means that they don't like playing you. That could be part of what I'm getting at too. Right. So in sports, you know, I've always thought that the place that you want to be, you want to be, um, in the place like Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, where your competitors hate playing against you. Right. And where the, your teammates absolutely love having you on their team. And if you're doing that, then people will talk bad about you. Right. Um, so certainly from a business standpoint, I would never anticipate that everybody would speak kindly about me because I'm not doing things that are that are in everybody's interest. I'm doing things in the interest of my investors and, right. and my own money and my own family and my own friends and my own, right. We all have our own tribes. Sure. And so I'm doing everything I can to help my own tribe win. And, uh, that sometimes is, is at the expense of other tribes. Are currently two different groups representing, I guess, kind of lobbying groups for studios here. Why are there two? I was always trying to figure out why isn't there just one uh, in this town right now. I think that that, complicated. I I think that, well, I think that's a a politically complicated thing about, um, you know, early movers and late movers and uh, smaller studios and bigger studios and. Um, and then in I mean, all are the of priorities of a smaller studio different than a larger studio in, in any way or not necessarily. I think then that just comes down to like ego and politics and all of the things that humans face when they are trying to band together. True. Right. So yeah, it's often you know, it's, less about the substance of what's going on. And sometimes it's about the individuals involved. Yeah. yeah. Why do we have political conflict? It shouldn't yes. be that complicated to just make a, make a nation wonderful. <laughs> If, if it was just about policy in and of itself from a, a purely straight objective standpoint, take all the emotion out of it. If we were all Spocks, sure, it'd be great. If we were all Spocks, then that would work. If it was just pure logic, but we don't live in a logical world. And I guess social media makes it so that everybody's inflamed and annoyed. <laughs> and Fair. And, and so inside, <laughs> of, inside of the micro world that is studios in Georgia, right? Which is a micro world, a micro sense. world, <laughs> yes. then, you know, people have their own egos and their own ideas. And, um, it's no, you know, in many ways it's no different than, than Protestant churches in America. If they yeah. don't like each other, they just make a new church. Right. Right. That's true. There are, there are many variants of just in the Protestant world. Right. So, um, and, and look, even Frank has his own sort of conception of how he created Pinewood that's different from how you create your studio, right? I mean, he's got, yeah, he, he wants to bring in like, uh, I guess he's brought in what, like 50 vendors on site or whatever. And he, he likes kind of like this, he has this conception, right, of how to create a Well, a li- listen, if, you know, um, the, the guys at Screen Gems... Yes. You know, we're early movers they in the space. were the first ones to open here, yeah, right. effectively. Um, I was and at a, the press conference for the very first opening when they opened, yeah. And, and that was exciting. It and was. And that was important. And yeah. it really got things rolling. And maybe Dan Cathy never builds Pinewood if they don't open Screen Gems. Right. I'm not sure. But until Dan opened Pinewood... That was a big deal. That was a Just huge the game changer. Just attached to it in the Hollywood world that gave it a sense of importance, right? That it was part of the, the, the folks in England, right? It was connected to them, and that gave them credibility, I guess, right? Well, if, if Georgia was credible enough to attract Pinewood, right. that was a big deal. Yes. Right? And, and then when, when Dan built such a fantastic facility, mm-hmm. a world-class movie-making production facility... And it attracted Marvel, and Marvel loved the place. Marvel's and, you a know, big deal. Yeah, right? having Marvel come here, 
it was game changer. So that's when the world just transformed, and we went from being a backwater of production. Right. I mean, the early shows were not the greatest shows. I mean, no offense to Lifetime's Drop Dead Diva and some of these early shows. They they weren't. Yeah, they they were okay, but. Yeah, we weren't getting the Walking Dead was kind of an exception, early exception in terms of becoming a huge, huge, massive hit. But you know, we got necessary roughness from USA Network. I mean, that, I, no offense, but not the greatest show ever. You know, no, well, it's not. It's not Marvel. No, right. And so when Marvel no, we comes, were, yeah, we were getting some low rent sequel type sh- type stuff. Yeah, in the early going. Yeah, the stuff that New Mexico gets, yeah. the stuff that Louisiana gets. The, yeah. you know, the, it's all of these. That's that's the kind of stuff that Atlanta right. was the, was yeah. getting pre Pinewood. We were not getting the hundred million dollar budget movies in the early going. Not at all. So when Dan builds Pinewood and attracts these, you know, the the, the A players. Yes. And then all of the vendors come to service the A players. Now we have an ecosystem that allows someone like me to build Black Hall. Right. Right. And so Black Hall only exists because Pinewood exists. So in a similar way, you know, Pinewood led the way on the physical space. And right now, Frank and Dan are are leading the way on the production space. They raise a a fund to start making content in Georgia. And so they're going to break that ice. Yeah, because that is still probably the weakest point. You know, Tyler Perry not included most of the ideas. Most of the concepts are still being made out of L.A., right? Most of the scripts. Absolutely. We don't have that ecosystem. producers, most of them still live in L.A., um, and even when they shoot here, and I've interviewed many people, you know, out of LA for shows shot here, and you can always, always get a sense. They say nice things about Georgia, but deep down, they want to stay in LA. <laughs> you know, you know that they'd rather just go and sleep in their own bed. You know? Well, and then that's because that's their home and yes. that's their ecosystem. And right, but Tyler, this is his home, and he. What what impact do you think Tyler has had so far? You know, his presence in his studios on the overall scene in Georgia. Well, I think he's had tremendous impact on the awareness of Georgia as a production hub. The place where I would like to see him have even more impact is on the capital side. So largely the things that Tyler has funded have been his own productions. True. That's where he makes all his you know, he's made I mean, lots he's, of money. Well, he finally opened it up to other people not too long ago. Now he's got a big enough studio. He has allowed people to shoot stuff there. Sure, but I'm talking about the capital side. Like I would love to see Tyler um, start funding other filmmakers, gotcha. right? Oh, start funding other producers. That's really what Has we're anybody missing. ever brought that up to him? Has he shown any interest? Have you seen anything? That's a good question to ask. Him. You know, um, Tyler and I are not close. <laughs> you know, we've we've met a few times. He lives in a different world, right? right I mean, right. I just run a I run a physical studio, yeah, yeah, and yeah. in his world, I'm a I'm a nobody because he's a superstar. You know, world famous right. he, actor. Yeah, he talks to Oprah. Yeah, that's the, his. It, right. So that that's his his peer group is. Samuel Jackson and yeah, Cicely Tyson. Yeah, so I'm not getting a lot of his ear, ear time. That's fair. That's fair. But that's not a bad idea for him to, if he wants to sort of, you know, and, and some of his former, you know, like Aru, he, he had worked with him and um, Roger Bob started a production company. He had worked with him. So a lot of the people he's worked with are, have been seated into other worlds. But you're like you said, it has, he hasn't done it on a, on a grander scale. Like he hasn't like said, um, he has $50 million for me to help these other people develop whatever. Right? I would love to see him say to Aussie Aru, yes, here's $50 million, make Latin content. Wow. Right. right. Make the Latin studio. Right. That is like the Tyler Perry, the way, the way what Tyler Perry is to the African American content community. 
let's make a Rue Brothers into the Latin version of that. And I mean, do you know if he's funded Ozzy in any way? Or he may, he may I, have, but we don't know. I believe right? that he's been involved in some of Ozzy's funding, but I'm not sure if that was facility related or content. Gotcha. Because I don't believe a Rue Brothers has been making content yet. Not themselves, no. Not. I mean, they're still. Yeah, people are on set, on the set doing stuff. Yeah. So they have a facility the way we have a facility. Yes. They've talked about it. I've heard them talk about it quite a bit. I don't yeah. know how far along they are. I would love to see that happen. Right. That, that's what we need. We need more people that are that are that are taking Georgia money and putting it into film and television and having that money make a lot of money. I mean, you're more of a real estate guy. Are you? Is, are you less inclined to do that yourself because that's not really your strength or well you know i mean really my strength in in real estate is investments yes. and finance right so there's all these different elements of fi- of of real estate right and my strength is like seeing things early or sure. trying to or imagining things in new ways but then i might bring guys on who are construction experts or i might bring guys on um who are uh legal experts right Right. i'm going to bring people on in all these different capacities in a similar way we will eventually grow into a production studio and my role in that will be to um, make investment decisions like raise money and uh, make green light decisions about concepts and ideas and intellectual property but i won't be involved like at the filming level right right you're, you're, you're not gonna, hire you're, all the you're best not, producers. you're not going to be spitballing ideas for the next sequel of i don't know star wars or something right <laughs> well i mean the, i might be involved in the ideas phase right that the right. intellectual property phase that's where i could add a lot of value that's true. right i mean i i um i make money as a businessman but really that's not my essence my essence is a, a essence. lot more poetic than that right so i i often feel like um a more poet, priest, philosopher kind of a soul that's masquerading in the business world. And yet those those elements of my personality might actually be my superpower it in the be. business yeah. world. Yeah, because you, you seem to have a good grasp of not just the details, but some of the big picture issues as well, right? And that's I'm better at the big picture oh, than I am at the details. But you hire people to deal with the gory I details. I hire people to deal with the gory and, details. And, and if you can keep your hand, are you, I mean, are you able, are you kind of an overly hands-on person or you no. feel like you're actually pretty good at keeping things? I'm not a micromanager. Not a and micromanager. That, and that is a strength and a weakness, right? It's it a can strength. Be. It can go either way. It depends. Yeah. If you get highly talented people yeah. who are self-motivated, there's nothing they've ever dreamed of more than having a boss who is hands-off. Yes. Right? right. Whereas if you get people that are in any way incompetent right. or nefarious, then right. they can abuse that kind of hands off. That's that's so you have to have a good sense in who to hire. <laughs> yeah, that's what you know. Yeah. My my biggest mistakes in my business life have all been about um, bad judgment about somebody's character. So well, hopefully uh, you've got a good staff now, right? You don't you don't fantastic. So you I have, mean, we have an last, amazing. When was the last time you had to fire somebody? Before we go, last question is a hilarious last I, question. I, fi- I, I fired somebody in the spring. Oh, you did. I oh, did, during yeah. the pandemic. During the pandemic, oh, I fired somebody. I'm sorry, you had to do it. Was it something they had? Was it incompetence, or was it something they had done that was more nefarious? It was nefarious. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but it you know it is what it is. Did you catch it before it got metastasized into something really bad? Absolutely, yes. that's good. Yeah. You got to catch these things early, so you still have to have people to watch. The other well, people. I didn't. I didn't catch it really. It was um, other people who work for me that's who were watching part. it, right? So there was there was accountability inside yes, of that ecosystem. That's important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. We could. Talk talk a lot longer, but we are out of time. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed 
reversing the uh, the tables here. <laughs> thanks for doing it. And uh, I'm Rodney Ho from the AJC, and thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write on Instagram. Let us sit in the silence of the awareness that we have no language to describe the presence that holds all things together. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap. <laughs>